Welcome, members and friends. It's March 14th, 2021, and this is the podcast service of the First Universalist Unitarian Church of Wausau. I'm Randy Jefferson, a member of the Worship Committee, and this morning's collaborative service, I'll be joined by Margaret and Donica. For 131 years, this church has been the beacon of liberal religion in North Central Wisconsin. We are a welcoming congregation, which accepts you as you are, regardless of age, gender, sexual orientation, ethnicity, or religious beliefs. Regardless of where you are in life journey, know that you are welcome here. We begin the service this morning with a call to worship. I've used this reading a number of times in services before, and I chose it today to really acknowledge that we miss our presence together. We miss being able to look into each other's faces. And I also share it with you as an expression of hope, a promise that the day is not that far off when we can again be in church. We can hug one another and we can look into one another's eyes. The words are from Kathleen Mateague. We come together this morning to remind one another to rest for a moment on the forming edge of our lives, to resist the headlong tumble into the next moment until we claim for ourselves awareness and gratitude, taking the time to look into one another's faces and see their communion, the reflection of our own eyes. This house of laughter and silence, memory and hope is hallowed by our presence together. And now, if you will, please join me in reading the chalice lighting, which is in your order of service. We light this chalice for the light of truth, the warmth of love, and the fire of commitment. We light this symbol of our faith as we gather together. Our opening hymn this morning is, "'Tis a Gift to be Simple."
For prayer this morning, I selected a piece by Barbara Kingsolver. Now, many of you know Barbara Kingsolver probably as a novelist. And I first discovered Barbara Kingsolver for a piece of nonfiction she wrote entitled Animal, Vegetable, Miracle, in which she talked about her family's move from Tucson, Arizona to a farm in southwestern Virginia, which is where she still lives with her family. I was very pleased to find out Christmas time that Barbara Kingsolver is also a poet. Anne gave me a book of Barbara Kingsolver's poems, which was recently written. And the poems are both practical and spiritual. They're a little wild and sometimes quite humorous. I made it a habit to read one of those poems each night before going to sleep after Christmas. And I ask you to put yourself in an attitude of prayer or meditation and listen on these words from Barbara Kingsolver. It's a poem entitled, How to Knit a Sweater, A Realist's Prayer. O Lord, whether male, female, animate, all-knowing, unreasonable, or just whether or not, we are practical people who hedge our bets. As I hold my loved ones this day in my thoughts, meditating on our hopes and wild adversities, I also hold a skein of goodwill, needles that click like rosary beads working through Hail Marys of knit and pearl. By involving fiber in my invocation of divinity, I feel assured of a fairly positive outcome. Now I invite you to take a moment, and if you wish to use needles or beads or whatever, think in silence on the joys and sorrows you hold in your heart. Amen.
This morning's reading is a section from Michael Pollan's book, Cooked. Cooked is described as a natural history of transformation, the transformation that takes place through fire or water, air or the earth. And this particular section I'm going to read comes at the end of the air portion of Cooked, in which Pollan talks about his education as an amateur baker. I had never set foot in a wheat field before, yet the sight of one is so iconic that the landscape feels immediately familiar, weirdly so. Standing in a field of wheat, it is impossible not to think about Flemish painters like Bruegel or Van Ryensdale or Van Gogh. The wheat field itself has changed. The wheat has changed. Modern breeders have made the plant shorter in stature and its seed head fatter. But from a distance, the overwhelming impression of ripe golden bounty, of nature's grace and sufficiency, remains indelible. The Romanger's wheat crop was still a few weeks away from harvest, almost, but not yet completely dried to gold in the sun. If you look closely at the leaves, there were still streaks of grassy green. I picked a stalk of wheat. A wooden stake planted on the edge of the field said it was a variety called red wing. This, it would turn out, was the variety in the sack of flour I got from Joe Vanderleet. Up close, a wheat plant looks like a particularly buff and muscular grass. Handsome, but perhaps just a little over the top, like a bodybuilder. The spike formed an intricate ladder of seeds arranged around the stem in a stepped herringbone pattern, each with its own elegant golden needles reaching for the sky. I rubbed the seed head between my palms. The light jacket of chaff came free from the kernels and blew away, leaving a small handful of seeds. I bit into one of the fresh kernels. It was still slightly soft, and though not quite ripe, it already tasted weedy and sweet. The complexities and possibilities contained within this inconspicuous speck, this seed, were hard to imagine, but there they were, everything needed to produce a wheat plant, and much more than that. With enough of these seeds and the knowledge of how to process them into bread, you had most of what is needed to grow a person, or for that matter, a civilization. From where I stood, the field stretched west to the bluish ridge of the coast range, a shimmering blonde avenue of lawn. If you stand in a wheat field at this time of year, a few weeks from harvest, it's not hard to imagine you're looking at something out of mythology, 
All this golden sunlight brought down to earth, captured in kernels of gold, and rendered fit for mortals to eat. But of course, this is no myth at all, just a plain, miraculous fact. Hopefully, for this human being, one of the outcomes of 72 years and four months of exchanging oxygen and carbon dioxide is a modicum of wisdom. It is not enough time to see everything clearly or answer all the questions that living presents to us. No number of years is sufficient for that. But is with some confidence that my check of bearings at this point on the trail finds me assured that meaning and purpose are almost always found in the everyday. Those rare peaks and valleys are not without importance, but most of life's treasures that end up being of sustaining value to us arrive in seemingly small events, in common, easy-to-overlook experiences. My message today is about life lessons learned and relearned through such an experience. What I relay to you will not make the earth tremble. If that is what you are seeking today, I will save you 15 minutes or so in your day advance the podcast to Margaret's always upbeat postlude, you will more likely find trembling there. If it might be helpful to hear a small reminder of the gratitude that can be gleaned from the everyday, I share these thoughts with you. 
A human gestation period after I drew down the curtain on my professional life just over six years ago, I delivered a Sunday message on what retiring had freed me to do. One of my reflections was on how I had tapped into that creativity gene that we all possess. My creative endeavor took place not in an art studio, but in my kitchen, questing after the perfect loaf of whole wheat sourdough bread. I suspect most of you either did not hear my musings or have forgotten what I said. Regardless, today will not be a recycled sermon, but a reaffirmation that with more practice of a discipline of your choosing comes more learning and deeper insight. If our attitude is one of openness, of wakefulness, simple acts and everyday experiences can provide us with lesson reinforcement and perhaps a sense of joy. After decades of regular yeast bread making, I was ready to take on the commitment that I knew making sourdough bread required. After extensive viewing of YouTube videos and online research, I decided on assembling a heating box to ensure the ideal temperature to enliven my starter and using the French fold knead method for working the wet, sticky dough. The box called for an overturned styrofoam cooler, large thermometer, light bulb, socket, and an electrical cord with a simple rheostat spliced into it to allow for subtle temperature adjustments, all of which required frequent floor-based hands and knees checking and adjusting over multiple hours. Once ready for kneading, the French fold method involved literally throwing the dough onto a floured counter in successive 90-degree rotations, producing a loud, wife-disturbing thump and causing the kitchen and adjoining room to vigorously vibrate. Not really satisfied with it, I dutifully followed this process for several months before finding my sourdough savior, Michael Pollan and his book Cooked. I found Cooked in a bookstore in Asheville, North Carolina on the way to the Spoleto Festival in Charleston, South Carolina, a music and performing arts extravaganza that Fellow church members Judy and John Stevens had highly recommended to Ann and me. I considered Pollen a food sage after previously reading his books Omnivore's Dilemma, In Defense of Food, and Food Rules. Food Rules is a thin but weighty tome in which Pollen set out simple maxims for eating, such as don't eat anything your great-grandmother wouldn't recognize as food. Avoid food products containing ingredients that a third grader cannot pronounce. And eat only foods that will eventually rot. In Cooked, Pollen wrote about his sourdough odyssey, including his method of creating a masterful whole wheat sourdough loaf. It eliminated temperature taking, which made sense to me as I reasoned a healthy starter should not need a vital sign measure so exacting. And it also replaced that earth-shaking kneading with gentle stretching. My transition to Pollen's method was transformative. Lesson learned. Do not get too complicated. Simple is often better. Applying Pollen's guidance, I incorporated a lengthy 
bulk fermentation stage in the process. Now, this is the hands-on stretching and turning of the dough every 30 minutes for four to five hours that allows it, the dough to strengthen and incorporate air, displaying a billowy growth. As I reflect on it, I realize there are two more life lessons that this step can teach. One practiced at length during bulk fermentation is really evident throughout the entire sourdough bread-making process. It is how critical patience is to many of our most worthwhile endeavors. When making sourdough bread, days are invested in the complete cycle of awakening dormant starter from its refrigerated storage, feeding it flour and water multiple times during half-day spacings prior to baking day, then investing eight-plus mostly waiting hours on baking day before your fragrant, crusty, dark mahogany loaves are turned on the cooling racks. Shortcuts are not advised. Patience is. The other reflected human lesson of bulk fermentation is the outcome. When we are stretched as a person, we grow We become more than we were before we challenged ourselves, taking a breath and deeply drawing in the air of transformation. Yes, it takes time, but the end result is so worth the investment. One of the real miracles of sourdough bread is that such a satisfying, sustaining food is comprised of only three ingredients— that are so basic, flour, water, and salt. Such bounty from such simplicity. I marvel that such a complex taste can be produced from but three elements. Another lesson here. The key to being sustained is dependent much more on how the ingredients of your life are blended and balanced than on the number of them. More does not mean better. Quantities that complement one another does. Too much or too little of any of the vital inputs in bread results in bread that is flat or insipid. Similarly, for a life. Pollen included in his whole wheat country loaf recipe in the appendix of Cooked. Now, after following it for the first loaves I made using his method, I applied another lesson that has served me well in all my kitchen escapades. A recipe is a jumping-off point for cooking adventure, but once tried, it is time for adjustment, for experimentation, modifying it to work best for you. Getting the loaf I am after has meant using less water, being mindful of how the dough feels each time I attempt the alchemy and adjust accordingly, shortening or lengthening rise times and dropping the oven temperature by 50 degrees from my hot-running oven. So often, the same is done as we craft our life, taking the basic recipe and acknowledging we are all an experiment of one, an experiment that requires flexibility and modification as we try to get what is best for the result we are seeking. A few more lessons I've learned or relearned from my sourdough adventures that are worthy of mentioning. Pre-retirement, I made a decision to try sourdough after hearing a Michael Pollan NPR interview during which he said that in the Bay Area, where he lives, 
People with sourdough starters stored in the refrigerators often hired someone to come in and feed it when they vacationed. That is, they discarded some of the sourdough starter and added flour and water. That convinced me that I had to investigate this special relationship with fermented flour. And part of my learning has been that contrary to much of what I had read, sleeping starter is hardy stuff and has amazing resilience. It can tolerate neglect and weeks between feedings. It can have a funky appearance and smell anywhere from alcohol to a ripe cheese to old socks. But amazingly, it almost always is still viable once care and feeding starts. We can be like that too. During a spiritual hibernation, a dark, cold period in the back of our personal refrigerator, our viability might be questioned. But when our soul is fed, we come to life ready to resume our role in fulfilling our purpose. Having been regularly making sourdough bread for the last six years, I have the process down. I have also learned that getting too self-assured is risky. Failure is always possible. A warm, humid day, a small misjudgment on dough wetness or proofing time can result in what looks more like a thick pancake than a round loaf of bread. The broader lesson here is the awareness that regardless of how learned or experienced we are, success is not always a given, which teaches us to stay focused on our task, but also makes it a bit easier to accept a failed effort. It is also why Plan B is often a good idea in sourdough making, keeping two jars of starter in the refrigerator in case one evidences a fatal overripe cheese smell and has to be discarded. Just as Plan B's are a good idea in our life for when a new start, a redirection is needed to move forward. And this is a sermon, so it just seems right to at least mention faith. A few moments ago, I said that the time given to proofing, that portion of the process when the dough is allowed to grow to readiness for baking, can determine whether the finished loaf will be a candidate for the Great American Baking Show or one the Nina Foundry could use to cover manholes. A critical component of the baking process is oven spring. Now this is the increase in the size of the loaf just after its covered pot is placed into the very hot oven. Experience has taught me that too much time proofing can expend all the sugar in the yeast, resulting in oven spring failure. It has also taught me to believe in the art and trust that following my instincts through each of the steps will most likely result in lows that are proof of the miracle of oven spring, confirming when I test my faith and uncover the pots for the final half of the baking. One final lesson. The driver behind my undertaking, the pièce de résistance, the culmination of the glorious transformation of flour, water, and salt. From the round to mescent loaf, the two toasted slices that had become my daily ritual of breaking the fast between 
the last ingestion of food the previous day, and the first of the promising new day. What I have learned is the meaning of savor, the patient use of all the senses in the awakening of my whole being to how good life can look, smell, sound, feel, and taste. My eye is drawn to the golden brown crumb with all its air pockets capturing the lightly spread honey and peanut butter, the toasted aroma still lingering in the air, the simultaneous sound and feel of that first crunch through the crust of the joined slices, and the recognition of the familiar but always new, mildly tangy, sweet, and slightly salty flavor that for me is a celebratory signal that the time of fasting has ended. Take pleasure again in the rapture of a slow, slow food experience. Take your time. Set the pieces down between small bites. Chew well. Make it last. That lesson of savor has taken deep root within me. As I am prone to say these days when talking about the joys of good food, if I had to choose a food that would be the last one that would pass my lips in life, without hesitation, it would be my sourdough toast. The totality of my sourdough experience has been, has been reaffirming for me with multiple lessons learned and relearned, none of them producing earth trembling. And on the worldwide scale of everyday experiences, there may be little that is as everyday as baking bread. But it is in the everyday where we meet mortality's most meaningful moments. May it be so. Now, in addition to being a member of the worship committee, I serve this congregation as your church's treasurer, and I'm responsible for monitoring our physical health for you and the board. So I'm acutely aware that 94% of our operating expenses are paid for from direct financial contributions from members and friends. Our continued well-being is dependent on your generosity. If you need information on how to give, please see our church website or contact Donica in our church office. I thank you for your contributions and your generosity. Now let's sing together our doxology.
If you're with someone this morning, reach out and hold their hand. If you're by yourself, imagine that we're together and you're holding the hand of someone next to you. I share with you these parting words by Mark Bellatini. Go in peace. Live simply, gently, at home in yourselves. Act justly. Speak justly. Remember the depth of your own compassion. Forget not your power in the days of your powerlessness. Do not desire to be wealthier than your peers, and stint not your hand of charity. Practice forbearance. Speak the truth or speak not. Take care of yourselves as bodies, for you are a good gift. Crave peace for all people in the world, beginning with yourselves. And go as you go with the dream, the dream of that peace alive in your heart.